mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic. They make me feel polished and modern. And the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin. And so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z Zibby 20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well. Rachel Kapelke-Dale is the author of The Ingenue, a novel. 
She's also the author of The Ballerinas and co-author of Graduates in Wonderland, a memoir about the significance and nuances of female friendships. Kapelke Dale spent years in intensive ballet training before receiving a BA from Brown University, an MA from the Université de Paris, seven or set, and a PhD from University College London. She currently lives in Paris. All right. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the ingenue. How did I, how did I do? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Okay. Can you please tell listeners what this book of yours is about? Absolutely. So uh, Ingenue is about Saskia Christ, who is in her late 30s and a former piano prodigy. And she comes home to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, after her mother's unexpected death, believing that she's going to inherit this kind of massive family estate, only to find that it's been left to this kind of mysterious family friend with whom Saskia has a complicated past. So the book is about her kind of unraveling both what led her mother to do that, how she can reclaim what she thinks is rightfully hers, and yeah, and and reframing uh, events from the past and various relationships. I found it so interesting how her complicated relationship made even her death seem like an insult to her, like that they had grown apart. And so her mm-hmm. mom hadn't told her that she was sick and it was like somehow the nail in the coffin of their relationship. Like, of course this would happen. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a way in which this, this for me is really kind of a coming of age book, which is funny to say about a character who's, you know, 37 at the time. But uh, I think, I think as Saskia, yeah, as the book begins, Saskia is still seeing a lot of, you know, what's happened in her relationship with her mother as things that are really kind of exclusively about her. Right. You know, she's still very much, you know, clinging to this idea, this concept of herself as she was as a teenager. And so it's it's very reactive, you know, the, the, this relationship with her mother. And I think, I don't know, I think for me at least, a big part of getting older, if not growing up, was, you know, coming, coming to terms and understanding my parents as people and not just as, you know, for the roles that they played and play uh, in my life, you know, and, uh, you know, I've always had wonderful relationships with them, looked up to them a lot. But I think, you know, there's still that tendency, no matter how old you are, to go, well, you know, you did this and, you know, you, you did that, you did that to me. And it's, it's, it's not that, it's not that simple, although I think we'd like it to be sometimes. Yes. That is very mature very like, well, <laughs> like, I feel like that's easier said than done. I, I know. I'm like, that is like, you're, you're like a therapist dream right now. Like this is the place where we should all get with our relationships with our parents. <laughs> well, we can get my therapist on conference call and see what she has to say about that. But, I should uh, actually do that podcast. I think that would be hilarious, except it would like breach every form of confidentiality, but to interview an author and their therapist, that would be so oh fun. Oh my God. Right? I'm 100% in. <laughs> um, yeah, I think every single author has some diagnosable something. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Usually, usually yeah. anxiety. Uh, usually, usually anxiety, but I don't know. This is a, this is why I feel like I relate so much to every author. I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I'm another data point for you. Yeah, super, <laughs> super high anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you explain your – so you live you, – you got a PhD in Paris, or t- but you went to Brown – tell me your life story, basically. <laughs> 
Uh, how long have we got? Uh, <laughs> that's such a question to ask a writer. But it's only fair because I have to say I've been, you know, I've spent last weekend just pouring through bookends. So, you know, oh, fair enough. Oh, you did. Mine. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So incredibly powerful. Yeah. Oh, um, well. But really uh, nice. yeah, so yeah, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I went to Brown. I actually laughed because I was waitlisted at Yale. So I think we could have <laughs> had these ultimate lives. Where <laughs> I, 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 I uh, yeah, I was so disappointed. I still am like have a little you know chip on my shoulder about the whole thing because I'm like what if? <laughs> oh I know I'm, my next my next novel is set at Yale actually. Oh it's, really? Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we can get into that later. Yeah, maybe, yeah. But, I could be maybe I could be your expert. You know, I don't know, uh, reality check or something. I don't know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, yeah, I went to Brown, um, spent a year, uh, a semester abroad in Paris. And um, then worked in New York in the art world for a couple of years after graduation. Um, I had this strange incident where I was hit by a car and um, in, in Brooklyn, and I got this small financial settlement that came out of it. And I thought, I can do anything with my life. What am I going to do? And I thought, I'm going to go to grad school in Paris because tuition here at the public universities is just, it's like... 200 euros a year. And, you know, it was at the time, it was another 200 euros for health insurance, which was, you know, my parents' big thing. Will you have health insurance? So I did my master's here, but... Wait, wait, can you go back to the car accident? Go go back to that for a second. What what happened? <laughs> yeah, so I was, I was off work. I was running late to uh, dinner at my friend's uh, apartment. And um, I was crossing the street, which was also an entrance to a highway on the light and a guy makes an illegal left turn out of nowhere and just smacked me down. But uh, first of all, (laughs) I have a lot of social anxiety and I was also in some kind of shock. So I just kept being like, I got to go to this party. I'm so late for this party. And he's like, you don't look good. (laughs) I was like, no, no, it's fine. Let me get your license plate and your number in case I have to go to the hospital later. But it'd be like after the party. (laughs) I showed up to my friend's party. They're like, we can see the bone on your forehead. My forehead was open. (laughs) They're like, one of us is taking you to the hospital. I was like, but I brought wine. And like like, I just had the top of the bottle, you know, clutching it. (laughs) It was, yeah, what what happened? I sprained my thumb, and I uh, yeah, I had that that cut on my forehead, um, which was it's it's one of those life events that at the time just feels like the worst thing that's ever happened to you. You know, I, I had a pretty fortunate childhood, um, but you know, in the end, you know the the way that it was complicated, and you know, with legal stuff. But the guy had to pay my bills, my hospital bills, because my insurance it wasn't it was his fault, the accident, and this and that, but like with the lawyer and anyway, so yeah, there ended up being a, a enough for, for graduate school. And so I, uh, yeah, I said, well, I'm, you know, going to go to Paris and do a master's and be a student again. I, I loved being a student so much. Uh, my parents are both professors and I'd kind of grown up, you know, at their heels at universities and it's kind of my happy place. So, uh, yeah, so then I, I came here and did my master's, and I wanted to go on and do my PhD in film, but here uh, and in Europe more generally, it's just, it, there's no coursework, it's just the written part. And my French is fairly good. My written French is awful. It is just so hard <laughs> for me to write in good French, you know, and the 
you know, at that point, thinking that I'd follow my parent in my parents' footsteps and become a professor, you know, my advisor was saying, why would you want the major professional document of your career to be in a language you don't write very well? You know, that he was, he was, you know, straight to the point, you don't write this very well. Why would you do this? Okay. So I, but at that point I'd done the coursework. And so I thought, well, I want to stay in Europe. I'll do it in London. So I went to London, um, did my PhD there. And at the same time, my best friend from college, Jess Pan, uh, had moved there. She married a Brit. And um, we'd had these long uh, email exchanges. Well, you know, we'd, I'd been hopping all over the world. She'd been living in China and Australia and uh, all of these places. We put those together as a book. So, you know, and that was the first book that uh, I, I published, Graduates in Wonderland. Uh, but, you know, London wasn't the place for me, even though, you know, it's an experience I wouldn't trade for anything. And, what you know, it's a little bit like the, the car accident and that, you know, it, it, I never would have had that first book if, with Jess if I hadn't been in London. So, you know, if, if certain things seemed meant to be in retrospect, even though not at the time. Where, what part of London did you live in? I think this was a real symptom of how uh, how the city wasn't a good fit for me. It's seven different apartments in six years. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, so I was all over the place. I was in Notting Hill, South Kensington, Chelsea at one point, but also the longest point was up in Highbury, North London. Oh, all all over the place. Um, okay. <laughs> I won't ask more about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So then after London, what happened? Well, I finished the PhD and the it was in film studies. Um, and I'd always thought of, you know, my parents both taught English. My parents are both also writers. My mother's a poet. My father's done, you know, many short stories, uh, writes fiction. And I'd always thought, <laughs> this is so a child's view of their jobs, but I was like, well, this looks like the best job to, you know, have time to write, you know, to be involved with creative people and students and just, you know, be in an intellectual community, you know, and still have this time and make a good living. But the fact is that to be a good professor, I mean, you need to have the same passion for it that I really only had for writing, you know, and everybody's going, okay, well, you got to turn your thesis into a book now. I was going, I don't, you know, I liked writing my thesis. It was interesting. It was fun and at times, but it was going, you know, that's not the, if I'm going to spend a year of my life doing a book, it's not going to be that book, mm -hmm. you know, oh, you have to publish articles. Well, I'd rather write a short story if I'm going to spend, you know, and the, the people who were in my cohort, you know, uh, it's now been seven years since I finished, uh, you know, I see just the absolute, you know, passion that has to drive that work, you know, and I just, I, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to go out without a safety net. I'm going to piece together freelance jobs and I can do that from anywhere in the world. So, you know, I was really, that's the point where, you know, that I'd gone as far as I could in the, you know, university system and other than doing another PhD in something else. <laughs> I was going, you know what, it's time to really make a decision and I'm going to throw this all into writing and just, you know, and just trust that it will happen, you know, hope that it will happen. <laughs> what was your thesis about? My thesis was about uh, foreign women in Hollywood of the 1930s, about their representations and the uh, kind of the 
their value, monetary and otherwise, to studios. So it had a lot to do with U.S. immigration policy at the time. It had a lot to do with, uh, you know, the, the certain concepts of whiteness and, you know, and virtue that were, these just these incredible, you know, it's not that long ago when you, you, you look back at these incredibly horrifying explicit statements made by, you know, public intellectuals and senators and all of that. And then, you know, working with the films, which was always my, my, the great pleasure of it, you know, putting them in their context. So interesting. Oh my gosh. I love hearing how your brain works. Okay. So keep going. <laughs> so you did that then, and then you moved back to Paris. Yeah. Yeah. I find Paris, a, for, for me, it's a much more livable city. London's enormous. Uh, it's, it's just geographically a lot bigger. It's very, you know, it's very expensive in a lot of ways. It's, you know, and I was going, well, if I'm going to do this freelance life, there's a lot about Paris culturally, just in terms of the size, getting around, you know, in terms of the food, in terms of a lot of the things that were important to me in terms of what kind of life I wanted for myself that were more accessible here. And yeah, I moved back uh, in, what had it been, 2018. Do you know the author Sutanya Dakers who lives in Paris? I don't. You, I want to put you two in touch. I just did a podcast with her about her book called Dinner for One. And it's a really interesting story, Post or her post-relationship, um, how she learned how to cook for herself and Anyway. Oh, I love that. I'm, yeah, it was, it was a fun memoir. I mean, not fun. I mean, it was heartfelt and all, fun is the wrong word, but it was really good. But anyway, you're both there and you should hang out. <laughs> yeah, I'd love that. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, so then talk about the ballerinas. Well, I've always loved this. I've always had this, this, this idea of returning home is something that's always really 
struck a chord with me. These kind of stories about going home again or, you know, being in the same place and you know, seeing the ghosts of the people that you were before in this same place. I was returning to Paris at... 34, which uh, at the time felt very old to me. And, you know, what happens is you just keep getting older. And you're like, what is it? <laughs> you know, there's no going back. But the last time I'd been here, I had been 25. That was a very different life stage. And, you know, anyways, you know, there's, it's the same people. It's the same. I'm even living in the same neighborhood, you know, and all of these things about my past, you know, I'd done ballet training as a teenager you know, there was a, there was so much that was coming up for me, you know, and at the same time, um, I think I was starting to kind of grapple with ideas of visibility and aging and, you know, what happens, and I think this ties into the second book as, as well, but what happens when so much of your identity is predicated on being young or being precocious or, you know, a ballet dancer, they're you know, they they, re- they have to retire so young. It is like tennis, so punishing on the body. Um, you don't see a lot of dancers, you know, in their 40s or especially in their 50s. And, um, you know, I'm going, well, I, I think when I was young, I, I had this this concept that youth was this inherent characteristic that I had. And then, you know, and there's some point, you know, in the past decade or so where I think me and a lot of my friends have looked around and gone, oh my God, are we the adults in the room? <laughs> when, did, when did that happen? You know, there's, uh, yes. you know, there's a, a friend was telling a story about somebody having a medical emergency on the bus. And she was like, oh, oh, I'm the one who's supposed to be called, you know, I've, I've got to mobilize now. I've got to, you know, I've, I've, we've got to step up, you know? And so, you know, how you grapple with that at the same time that there are lots of messages saying that, you know, you're, you know, the things that made you valuable. And I think this is particularly true for women of, you know, our generation, you know, this kind of elder millennial, you know, Gen X, uh, you know, that was being young was treated like a characteristic, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was celebrated, you know, almost fetishized. And it's like, yeah, but that's not, that's not anything to do with me as a person, you know, mm-hmm. that's not anything to do with the core of who I am. And I think getting caught up in that, and dealing with that as you get older and you say, well, okay, well, who am I beyond that? I think that, yeah, those, those questions started to really haunt me and, and I, yeah, and I started playing with them a little bit. Hmm. There's a new young woman on my team named Faith Tomlin, who is a former ballerina and she finished, she like retired right before also Yale, actually. I thought maybe it would be fun if she interviewed you for something like some feature for a magazine or some, I think that would be fun. Anyway, yeah, I might put, okay. All these, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not letting you go here, Rachel. There's, <laughs> these are the three things we have to do. After oh, I love interview. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when the book, when ballerina, when the ballerinas came out, what was that like for you? And then when did you start working on the ingenue and what had it, like, where do you see your whole trajectory going and where does this sort of dark element come in? This is like, I mean, the elf house was like creepy, you know, and (laughs) I'm like, oh, I can't read this one before bed necessarily. Like I, I, you know, these like these little godly, these little statues that no one knows where they came from. And like sort of you do this like montage of the house through time where you're just like, how did this get here? And you like, suddenly it's like, like a fast forward film thing. Actually, it's so funny, I guess. Now you have this whole film studies background because it, it does feel like you just did a, like you 
like where the seasons change, you know, you're in the same place, how you introduce that. <laughs> the house. Anyway, so where, where is the dark? Where is that coming from? I, my mom would say that it's my Scorpio side coming mm-hmm. out <laughs> for sure. I'll tell you what, when I sat down to write ballerinas, I wanted to write, I don't know if you know the book Summer Sisters by Judy Bloom. Yes, totally. Yes. Oh. Just like just a pivotal book for me, you know, when I yes. when I read that. Because I think to that point I hadn't read anything about really the complexities of female friendship. You know, uh-huh. it's just like, oh, and they're buddies. You know, and it's right. just like, no, it's so it's as, if not more complex than other relationships. But I was like, yeah, I want to do this reunion and you know, these they're working through the issues of their past and they're, you know, pulling this. <laughs> things just turn dark on me. Yeah. It's, it's, it just, uh, I think there's something in me that really wants to push it as, you know, as far as it'll go and just explore that. And with Ingenue as well, you know, I, I, I sat down saying, you know, I want to write something about fathers and daughters because I don't think that this has been, there are a few, there are a few works that explore it exceptionally well. Like the play proof is just, mm, that was uh, so good. Oh my gosh. Oh. Just, so you know, knock the wind out of me, you know, but this, uh, I think it's such a, for me, it's been, you know, I'm, I'm very close with my father. It's been, you know, one of the most important relationships in my life, you know, and I, you know, I thought about something like, you know, American Pastoral, like the Philip Roth, where it's like the daughter's gradually becoming this monster that he doesn't recognize. Mm-hmm. He's going, yeah, but what if they're kind of carried along together and, you know, and then, you know, they, yeah, and it just turned into this, <laughs> these gothic elements just kept creeping in there. But the Elf House, actually, that's a real place. There's a, it's based on a real place. There's a, a mansion in Wisconsin, a few blocks away from where I grew up with two, I guess they're gnomes. Uh, this has been clarified for me. <laughs> but but uh, I like elves better. But in real life, they're gnomes sitting on the, the front of uh front of the house. And one of the reasons that, you know, I was thinking of that when I started to write Ingenue about, you know, boomer millennial tensions and this idea that, you know, when we were growing up, it was, you know, you're going to save the world and, you know, girls can do anything. And these kind of really facile statements. I mean, the kind that you do give to kids. And then somewhere along the way, it flipped into like, well, you're eating too much avocado toast and you're not buying houses. And, you know, it's not it's like, well, you know, these things aren't happening in a vacuum. And I think the way that the house played into that is like a lot of people, I think in my, my age, I'm very obsessed with houses and mm-hmm. with, you know, with real real estate. And, you know, back before the internet, they would have these little boxes in front of the house with flyers that showed you, you know, the insides of the rooms and the floor plan. And I was this weird little kid going around being like, what's the inside of this house look like? I got to know. Oh, yeah. I'm the and same way. House- by the way, they still have those in some places. Oh. Yeah, like because they they have them um, in some houses in LA and in the because I, I, I still sometimes grab the things. Oh, I also I go to open houses anytime there's an open house, <laughs> no matter what I'm doing. Absolutely love open. No, houses. I, I I'm obsessed. And that house was a, one of the flyers I'd grabbed as a little kid, and it was on sale. And it's it's a huge house. It's not as huge as the house in the book, for something like five hundred grand. Now Milwaukee real estate is notably a bargain. It is not New York, <laughs> not LA. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this, this would have been in the 90s. And then it recently went on the market again for several million. Oh my gosh. And I'm going, you know, salaries haven't changed that much since True. that point, you know. So, you, you know, you're looking at that house in the 90s and you're going, well, somebody with a moderately well-paying job could take on that kind of mortgage for that house. 
you know, and, you know, at this point it's, it's going, no, you gotta, you know, this is, it's very hard to earn the kind of money you'd need for a house like that now, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is, you know, this, it's impossible, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I think this this uh, book let me kind of fulfill some of my dreams of home ownership uh, <laughs> of certain properties I've had my eye on for decades. Well, I feel like this also needed a bunch of work. I feel like the house needs work. Like we need like a, a refresh. You might need to get an architect in there, do a little, you know, rejiggering and, um, you know, freshen it up. <laughs> Fixer upper. Next thing you know, it's on HGTV. <laughs> You should do that. You should try to get, you should have HGTV come and do the Elf House like renovation. Did someone buy it? That, yeah, it's actually, it's wonderful on the inside. I mean, they did a huge renovation a okay. few okay. years ago and, you know, it's got the the pool, which in Milwaukee you can use for about three weeks a year, <laughs> you know, sauna, wine cellar, you know, all of that. It's gorgeous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. What are you working on now? So I just finished a uh, book three. So I was about to go off to copy editing. So there are a few more stages. And that's the, it's a Yale equestrian mystery so from another uh, part of my life. I was, I was uh, very obsessed with it as a child with just every kind of lesson. And I would be, you know, take each lesson for about, you know, three months. And uh, <laughs> the only ones that really stuck were uh, ballet and riding. But uh you know, I'm, I'm going through now all of them. Uh, so eventually we're going to have weird uh, ice skating stories and I don't even know what. <laughs> and then immediately started uh, book four, which is going to be, I think, an art book set in France. But it's far too early days for me to, I don't even know more about it at this point, you know, wow. still imagining it. I like the idea of taking all your extracurricular activities as a child and each one becomes a book. It's like you're finally monetizing all of that, all of those classes. That would be great. I'm thinking. You remember, I don't, don't know if you remember the series, like a very young blank. They had a very young Yeah, dance. by Jill Kremens. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. We had those and I was obsessed. And I feel like I'm really working my way through that series now, but like just adding like murder, like a very young ballet murder. You know, very <laughs> young piano, pianist murder, you know. <laughs> circus fire. Didn't they have a circus yes. fire? One? Yeah. Yes. My sister keeps joking about that. So, you know, your next one's going to be a very young clown murder. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, that would be that. terrible. Clowns are already scary. Oh my Don't gosh. give me any ideas. Yeah. yeah I, I can see that, you know, 2027. You know. Anyway, <laughs> well, Rachel, it was so lovely to chat with you. Um, I'm so excited to have, you know gotten to know you better. What advice do you have for aspiring authors? Okay, so I, before I before I say this, I should preface it. I have ADHD, so I get into periods of hyperfocus. My brain works very differently than other people, so my this may not apply to everybody. But you have to finish the first draft as fast as you possibly can, without falling in love with anything, you know, with keeping in mind that everything can change. And that, I mean, my, it's, it's the Anne Lamott thing of these shitty first drafts. My first drafts are junk. And I know that as I'm writing, but the thing is that the, you can't figure out what's, what the story is until you know what you're working with. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't figure, you can't make it match that ideal that you have in your head or, you know, the, the vibes that you're going for until you have something, you know, that you're comparing to that, 
you know, to actually work with and to, you know, to, to start identifying, you know, and I, I think there, there are a lot of people who get caught up. And I, when I was young, I would write like this too, just in perfecting every sentence as you go along. And when you do that, you don't want to throw it out because you're like, that, that, that sentence is so perfect and this and that, you know, and like a lot of writers, I have my junk file where I'm like, ah, I do love that sentence. It's going in there 90% of the time. It never sees the light of day again. But, you know, sometimes it does. The last line of Ingenue is from a short story I wrote when I was 16, which was just an absolute mess, uh, except for that last line, which I always wanted to use. Uh, and this was, this was the book that... Uh, into this one, she watches the light, the light as it plays tricks across time. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Amazing. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. But, uh, yeah. I, but won't you guys, even, but... I won't read the previous two lines at the end of this book for fear. <laughs> Major reveals. Well, all this is great. Thank you so much. Good luck. And I'm going to yeah. email you all the, the, the follow-ups. <laughs> oh, amazing. Thank you so all much, right. Libby. Have a great day. Bye, Rachel. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 